right. So if you've, if you've been with us, we're in a new series. And um, I started at the beginning of the year. I really felt led to focus on purpose and passion. Specifically, what is our individual purpose and passion? And what does that look like as a community? And so we've actually been going back to the very, the very pinpoint of the target of what our purpose is. We've been looking at the gospel message for the last two weeks. The gospel you know, I could, I could give you all sorts of pointers of what your purpose is and what it should look like. And I love how um, Pastor Bill Johnson at Bethel, he's like, people come to me all the time and they're like, Pastor Bill, what, what should I do with my life? What's my purpose? And he's like, well, what do you, what do you want to do? I want to be a teacher. We'll be a teacher and heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leper and bring the kingdom of God. Well, I don't know what to do with my life. I don't know if I, should, if I should continue trying to be an actor or if I should go back home to Ohio. Pick one, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leper, bring the kingdom of God. Now, I, there's a bit of emphasis because God does lead us, but sometimes he does give us powerful choices as well. The important thing is, have we surrendered the kingdom of God flowing through our lives? Have we surrendered the good news of Jesus and the kingdom of God operating in our lives? And have we lowered the bar because we want to find our purpose? And so we actually become self-consumed with trying to find our own purpose rather than finding the purpose and meaning of our lives. So I got to reset us. I got to get out your compass. It's heading to your true north. His name is Jesus. I got cheesy illustrations today. Get out your compass. It's good. Okay, so today's message, I want to preach on the main message of our lives, Christ and Him crucified. Someone say amen today. Amen. We're going to be looking at Athens and Corinth to start. The Apostle Paul, author of much of the New Testament, was an incredibly educated man. He had a thorough understanding of Greek philosophy. He was a high-ranking scholar of Jewish thought and practice. He was actively persecuted, um, but before he was persecuted, he was persecuting followers of Jesus throughout the Roman Empire until God sovereignly encountered him. God knocked him off of his donkey. He blinded him. God is not just a gentleman. He can sometimes give a nice push and a nice blinding. Perhaps um, Paul was the primary voice of spreading the gospel of, of Jesus through the Mediterranean world. He wrote many of the books of the New Testament inspired by the Holy Spirit. And listen to what his primary goal and message was of his entire life. Let's read together in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. Let's flip there together. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. It will also be on the screen. Paul writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. He's basically saying, I'm not the most articulate speaker of all times. I, I'm not giving you the most wisdom that is going to make you shed a tear. It's so beautiful. I am bringing you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. That your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. 
in this portion of scripture, Paul makes quite a bold statement. He says, I determined not to know anything. Not only would this have been an odd statement at the time for an individual to make, but especially a Jewish prominent leader with the Jewish community elevating education and knowledge in their culture. For him to say, I determined not to know anything, we as the reader have to wonder why the heck he is saying such a strong statement. Paul, aren't you being a little bit melodramatic? (laughs) And before we look deeper, let's briefly look at the historical context and the setting for when he's writing. I love that we have a parallel that we can find in Acts chapter 18. Acts is Acts of the Apostles in its full title. And throughout the book of Acts, it gives us history written by Luke, who was a doctor. So he, left, he kept some great facts, and it let us know the journey of the, of the apostles. So in Acts 18, we are given some of the history of Paul's ministry while he was in Corinth. And it describes what's happening at the time that he wrote the letter to the Corinthian church. But in the previous chapter, Acts 17, Luke writes about Paul's time when he was in Athens and the ministry that took place there. While Paul was in Athens, Athens was the university city of the world. It was the absolute center of philosophy and human wisdom. And and when you look at Athens, you think about being the, the center of secular humanism at the time. What we can kind of glean from the text is that while he is in Athens, he adjusts his message for his audience. You know, we're actually taught that sometimes. Like when you're presenting the gospel, adjust it for the audience that you're with, right? Have you heard that before? Adjust it. You know, I'm going to talk to a DJ about the gospel a little bit differently than I would a chemist. You know, I might throw in with a DJ, I'll say, you know, the Holy Spirit is kind of like Timbaland. You know, he's just working behind the scenes, giving hit after hit. He's like the producer of your life. But I'm going to talk to a chemist quite differently, wouldn't I? I know it's a powerful illustration, Timbaland. It just really came to mind. I was like, Holy Spirit, how would I talk to a DJ? Timbaland, inspired by the Lord. The chemist, he did not give me. (laughs) I have no periodic table news for you. (laughs) But Acts 17 tells us, I only speak what my father tells me to speak. I only speak what my father says to speak. And when he says Timbaland, I speak Timbaland. It's anointed, it's anointed. Yep. There it is. (laughs) Acts 17. It tells us that when Paul is speaking, when he is speaking to the crowd, this is like a court kind of setting where they discuss um, what would be like issues of the day, even religious issues of the day in Athens. His audience was the highest level of intellectual in the social community of Athens. And so we can see from the text in Acts 17 that he addresses them in their, in their language. He uses philosophical terminology. He uses concepts that they would be familiar with. He even quotes a Greek poet. He's getting real fancy. He's an intelligent man, so he's firing with all of his cylinders of his intellect, appealing to these upper echelon Athenians. But what we see is striking. 
that even with all of Paul's knowledge, his smooth words, bending it to meet people where they're at, the end of Acts 17 tells us the results were pretty slim. Only a few people believed. And this is the Apostle Paul that we are talking about. And it kind of makes me feel a little bit better because even the Apostle Paul didn't always see fireworks when he preached. And scholars debate, did Paul take the right approach adjusting his message or was this actually not effective because he bent it too much for his audience trying to appeal to them? Leaving Athens. As Paul left Athens and headed to Corinth, I think he was thinking pretty heavily about the approach. He was like, man, I just gave a lot of energy. I think I was pretty bright. I was, I was really firing with these guys. But the, why was it such a slim? The nets were cast. It was just a few fishies in the nets. And here he goes on to Corinth, the next assignment. Corinth, Corinth, about 50 miles west of Athens. I even have a nice map for you today. You can see Athens there, and 50 miles to the west is Corinth with the red icon. Anyone have another name for what that is? Pin. Thank you. Almost a pin. The icon. So 50 miles west. That 50 miles is about how far Newport Beach is. So he's not going that far. But Corinth is a sprawling port city. Like many port cities, you're going to see a lot of immorality, sexual promiscuity, idol worship, a lot of mixture, all-round darkness by how people were living their lives, living their lives for selfish gain and for gratification, self-gratification. Doesn't sound too unfamiliar, does it? Hmm. And perhaps it's safe to assume that as he traveled to Corinth, after not seeing much change in Athens, he makes a decision. When I get to Corinth, I'm going to quit all of the bells and the whistles, and I'm going to strip it down to what is most important, the most important part of the message. I'm going to forget everything I knew except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so he did. He preached Jesus. He preached the cross, the glory of salvation, freedom found in Christ, new life. He preached the gospel. And what's the result? The text tells us that the entire city was stirred. Can you imagine if we started preaching and the entire city was stirred? Imagine it a little bit more. Let that faith muscle start to activate in your lives. What is it going to look like as the entire city is stirred as we begin preaching the good news of Jesus? Historians estimated there were potentially 25,000 new converts who came to faith in Jesus around the time in Corinth in this time of history. Very different from the response of Athens. What is the difference? The difference is the message. The cross is at the center. The Holy Spirit gripping hearts with the power of the cross. There's a man named Derek Prince. I love his teaching. A lot of this is, is launched from his teaching and his heart in this area, his passion about the cross and the blood of Jesus. He is a theologian and an itinerant minister who is, um, I don't know when he passed away, maybe in the 90s, but um, before he came to faith, he studied at Cambridge. He was sitting directly under what was known as the father of linguistic philosophy, deeply studying modern philosophy, trying to find the answers for life. But through all of his study, he never was able to know God through human wisdom. He found himself somehow, God got him somehow to a Pentecostal church, just like some of you are like, somehow I am in this 
fairly Pentecostal church today. And in this church, there was a simple taxi cab driver who was preaching. And in the middle of this taxi cab driver's message, he got up on a bench to give an illustration and it even broke in half and made a big thud and was awkward in the moment. And so even in the middle of this awkward, simple attempt to bring the gospel message, in all of its imperfection, the Holy Spirit spoke to Derek's heart. And he says, yet when I heard the foolishness of the gospel preached, the response leapt in my heart. I have to tell you that no matter how perfect my presentation is, the Holy Spirit is willing, he wants to, he will move through these words of life. He holds the words of life, where else would we go? And our hearts are made, we are made and designed to know, to recognize, and to believe and trust in his salvation. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25. He says in verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, the cross is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For the Jews request a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What a passage, right? Hit me upside the head, Jesus. That is good. Come on. In many of our lives, the message is not perfectly polished when we came to faith. We were not manip manipulated by emotionalism and the glamour of it. But Jesus is living. His word is living. The truth is living. And it cuts. And it reveals our heart. We felt the pull of God's love beckoning us home. God, could this message be real? Could there possibly be a man named Jesus who calls himself the Messiah, be the son of God that came and died and rose again as the most radical act of love for my life, paying it all to buy me back, that I simply need to look to Jesus and believe? Next, the meaning of the cross. I think it's important for us to understand when we're talking about the cross, what do we actually mean? A cross is so much more than a decorative necklace or something that we hang on our wall that looks good or makes us feel nostalgic. It's so much more than an ancient form of tormenting execution. What we are talking about when we mean the cross is that the cross refers to Jesus's sacrificial death on the cross and all that his death accomplished for us. Scripture is incredibly clear on why we need the cross, why we need it at the center of our lives. 
and the center of our message, the resounding life message of Christ and him crucified. Why will we never get past it? And now I want to do something that's a little bit different. I have invited four individuals. They're going to come forward. We're going to list some of the core benefits of the cross of Christ and how these core benefits actually uh, mean everything to the life of the believer. So let's, let's come forward. Let's welcome those individuals this morning. The benefits of the cross. Let's, let's actually like really listen in. Maybe even posture your, yourself for a moment just to receive. Because this is the, this is the free gift of salvation. Let it wash over you as the truth is read. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross is a benefit to mankind because it is the ultimate demonstration of God's love. It, re- it reveals the assurance and security of God's everlasting love. It reveals the magnitude of God's love. It reveals our astounding worth to God. Through the cross, Jesus was our all-sufficient, perfect sacrifice. It is the only remedy for sin. It was a legal act of our freedom. It is the place of total victory. It is our deliverance from guilt, condemnation, and accusation. It's the sole basis of Satan's defeat. It is the place of true, lasting peace through Christ. It is the place of continual forgiveness. It is the place where we can confess the power of the blood. It is the place of justification, just as if I've never sinned. Through the blood, I am sanctified, made holy, and set apart to God. Through the blood, I am boldly, I have boldness to enter the presence of God. Through the blood, I overcome the work of Satan. His power is broken. His blood cries out continually to God in heaven on my behalf. The cross was a release of supernatural grace. It provides access to the holy God as we are made holy. It empowers us for righteousness and holiness. It is the connection to the vine of Jesus where all life flows from. It is how we can abide with God to know him intimately. It illuminates us to the truth and opens our hearts. It is the access point to the Father who adores us. It's good. It is the doorway to hidden wisdom. The cross lifts us to heavenly places. The cross allows our steps to be illuminated and we go further with God. It is freedom from the present evil age. It makes a way for eternal, abundant life here and into eternity. The cross made me a new creation where the old has died and new has resurrected. The cross allowed me to be born again. The cross paid for my adoption into God's family and to be called a child of God. The cross gave me an entirely new identity and purpose for living. Take a deep breath and reset to receive. There's more. Take a deep breath. 
The cross is freedom from the law. The cross gave us a new covenant in his blood. It is freedom from self. It is the place where we come and die and find that we truly live. It allows the spirit of God to reside in us and live through us. The cross reconciles us to others. It is freedom from the sinful flesh. It deals with sin and its consequences. The cross saves us fully, mind, body, soul, and spirit. The cross brings physical healing to the body by the blood. The cross heals mental disorders, sicknesses, soul wounds, and past traumas of all kinds, restoring us to wholeness. Amen. Someone say amen again. Let's go. Thank you guys for reading that out over us. benefits of the cross. I want to focus in on specifically the release of supernatural grace this morning. The release of supernatural grace comes from the cross. One of the main reasons we we have to keep the cross at the center of our life message is that the cross releases the supernatural grace of God into every area of our lives. The supernatural grace of God is an invitation It brings us to the end of our own wisdom, the end of our own righteousness, in our own strength, to show that our own power is absolutely inadequate in comparison to his presence and power. In fact, if you want to experience the supernatural grace in your life, the only way it becomes active, felt, experienced, and owned in our lives is when we come to the end of ourselves. Even when you're sitting with me in this place today, Somehow you have found yourself in this room, and I am convinced that the Holy Spirit is doing an orchestrating work, speaking to your heart this morning. He is after your heart. And I'm sure that many, if not most of us, are thinking this morning, just even even as we're in worship and we're thinking about God and, and his presence and what he's doing in our lives, I bet so many of us are out there thinking, God, what are you going to be doing about these things in my life? Where are you? God, are you doing anything about this? It feels sometimes too much. Your mind, your mind feels crowded. But here's the answer. God in his absolute kindness is a good shepherd. He is working with his little baby lambs. That's you guys. He's working. And he's bringing us to the end of ourselves. He's bringing us to the end of our very best efforts. He is shepherding us to the end of our very best efforts. And he's over here saying, my sweet little baby boo, thank you for trying really, really hard. Really, really hard. I mean trying really hard. But even with your best efforts, even with your best efforts, it's not going to be enough. Why? Because this good shepherd desires wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly, to provide his supernatural grace released into your life that is fully from him. He has enough grace for you today. You might think he might not have enough for you. I can assure you, he has enough grace to brim over the top of your life this morning. 
my next point. The cross is stronger. 1 Corinthians 1, 22. For the Jews request a sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. And we talked about how that's a stumbling block, how it's foolishness. When Paul was preaching in Corinth, his emphasis was Christ crucified. Sometimes it's easy to present Jesus. He's good. He's a healer. He's a good teacher. But but when you get into this whole message of, of, of Jesus being a stumbling block, Jesus Christ crucified, we're talking about blood, we're talking about death. This is a lot to take in. The emphasis on his blood, that is offensive. We say that the cross is the foolishness of God and the weakness of God. What does that mean? If you think about the cross and you think that this is a man in his ultimate weakness, the cross was meant to be a humiliating torture mechanism of execution to the Roman world. And here is Jesus hanging naked, who calls himself the son of God, dying in agony, grasping for breath, suffocating under his own body weight. Isn't it foolishness that God would send his own son into the world only to die the death of a criminal? The cross is therefore absolutely weak and foolish with merely worldly wisdom and understanding. And in our lives, in our lives, when we come to the end of our ropes, when you're hanging on, you're like, I think I can do this in my own strength, but this rope is ending real soon. (laughs) When we've given it all and there's nothing else to hold on to, we make a great discovery that God's weakness is stronger than our own strength. God's foolishness in the cross is wiser than our own wisdom. The cross comes in supernatural grace in our weaknesses. Next, supernatural grace, the faith of God's son. How often do we find that when we're facing different issues of life, either patterns of thoughts, relationships, goals we're trying to enter into, whatever you are facing, you find yourself thinking, I I can't do this. I can't do this. This is too hard. I really wish I could do this, or I really wish I could stop doing this. You just find yourself weak and fragile and helpless but we have an incredible verse, Galatians 2.20, that I'm going to read from the King James, and it says, I am crucified with Christ, with him. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. These are some good scripture memory verses, I'd say. (laughs) Give yourself a gold star if you memorize it this week. I love how the King James emphasizes that it's not just faith in the Son of God, it's the faith of the Son of God, alive in us. It's not my own faith that I'm even leaning on. When I gave my life to Jesus, his very own faith took up residence in my life, indwelling within me by the Holy Spirit. He came with his faith. And so Paul's declaration in Galatians 2, he came to the end of his own ways, his own path, his own strength and wisdom, to the end of his own life. And when he came to the cross, Paul died at the cross. And in exchange, giving his life to Jesus, it is now Christ resurrected in him, living in him, flowing with supernatural grace. Next, supernatural grace, the key to holiness. Understanding this passage and the truth that it's now Christ that is living new life in you is the key to walking in holiness and freedom. 
In the Old Testament, God's people were instructed, they were instructed to walk in an extreme holiness. They were meant to be a people that were set apart, walking in holiness, demonstrating who their God was. And so Moses wrote Leviticus 11.45, God declares, you shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Holiness in the Old Testament was in keeping very complex rules. Yet in the New Testament, the New Covenant, we find ourselves again with these words. Peter now refers back to Leviticus 11 and writes, Be holy, for I am holy. But we have to see that the contrast between these two two covenants, the difference between Old Testament and New, the old is all about keeping Mosaic law. In the new, it's not about keeping rules, the do's and the don'ts. It moves from all of the external to matters of the heart. It's about Christ in you, Christ enabling you to fulfill the law in him. In the new covenant, holiness is attained by coming and dying. It sounds a little bit morbid, doesn't it? You want to be holy? Come and die. Come and die. And find you'll truly live. It feels almost like a paradox. It's an antinomy. It's saying, come and die. You will live. It's saying, don't be a slave to sin anymore. Be a slave to righteousness, and you'll be truly free. It's an antinomy where it feels like it's at odds with each other, but it's actually, it's actually language used to reveal the power of life in Jesus. You want to be holy? Come and die. Fine, that's where you're going to truly live. Jesus living his life through you. Therefore, it's not my holiness. It's not my good works. I can't boast in how good I've been in my own strength. It is the supernatural flow of grace that is deeply at work within me. And here's the key. Derek Prince says, it's not struggling. A lot of you are like, I've been struggling a long time. I've got good intentions, but I'm struggling. It's not struggling. It's yielding. It's not effort, but union. Union with Christ. That is the key. Union, relationship, intimacy, fellowship with God. When you fellowship with God, you can't stay the same. There's a story of an incredibly godly woman who was widely respected, and people would ask her how she walked in such holiness and grace. Sister, how do you, how do you resist temptation? You are stunning. I don't know. I wanted to give it a southern accent. <laughs> felt right. Felt right. I feel like she's like in a Baptist church, just like killing it. Sister, how do you, how do you resist temptation? And she replied, when the devil knocks on my door... I just let Jesus answer. Didn't that feel good with a southern accent? When the devil comes knocking at my door, I just let Jesus answer. Come on, sister. She's basically saying, not I, but Christ. Not I, but Christ. If you want to see victory in your life, if you need the power and the grace of God, which the Lord knows we all need, it's not from what I can do. It comes from yielding. What are you yielding to? You're yielding to a life in union with God, deepening close fellowship with the Father, letting God do his work flowing in and through you, and there will be fruitfulness in life in Jesus. My next point, supernatural grace, the vine and the branches. 
Perhaps the greatest imagery we have of this kind of lifestyle is found in John 15. Here, Jesus himself is teaching, and he shows us what it looks like to have his life be lived through us. It's the illustration of the vine and the branches. John 15, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. There it is. That's life in Christ in a nutshell. We can learn a lot of the image of the vine and the branches. This short parable includes the three persons of the Trinity. The Father is the vine dresser. Jesus is the vine. The Holy Spirit is the sap moving through you. And we, we are the branches meant to produce the fruit of the Spirit. One thing to note, who's the vine dresser? Who's the vine dresser? Your church leader, right? Your church leader is the vine dresser. And you, gotta, you better submit to your church leader because he or, <laughs> he or she sees some things in your life that need a little snippety snip, <laughs> right? And a lot of you guys have been burned by your spiritual leadership. And I just want to let you know, I have been burned by spiritual leadership. If you've walked in any kind of spiritual circles, you will be burned by spiritual leadership. We are not perfect. Lord knows, that's a whole other discussion. My point is, the one that has the pruning shears, a father God. He's the father. He is cutting off the unhealth. He is cutting off the dying branches. He is shaping us into health. It is the father. We actually have to be careful who we are pruning and who is pruning you. A lot of spirit, very spiritual people will want to prune you. <laughs> and I know we've ex experienced some pain through that. But really, spiritual leadership should be present for this reason, to help people yield to the perfect hand of God for pruning and to be present, present with them and for them through that process. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that spiritual leaders cannot, cannot give you the heart of the Father or bring correction, but it is God who brings the pruning. Even just looking at the word fruit implies it's not our own efforts. We're not the ones creating it. All of our efforts have to be at rest in Jesus, yield to him, see the grace for the fruitfulness. It's in the yieldedness that we can then declare out with Paul, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Another very literal translation of this text, I love this, says, I can do all things through the one who empowers me within. Don't you love that? because it shows he's not just this external distant God. He's empowering you within. And when you say yes, or when you say no to various things in strength, there's actually a presence of God with you when you are making your powerful decisions. And I have to tell you every single day, we, we are charismatic people. We are looking for the big light show. We are looking for the big open doorways. But I have to tell you in our lives, it's the everyday small decisions that are carving out the path of your destiny. The everyday small decisions are carving out a path of life or death. And which one are you going to take? The small everyday decisions are crucial for your life. 
I cannot say that enough. And when you give your yes or your no powerfully, even if it feels like it is your own strength and your own willpower, self-control is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. He is present, he is dwelling within you, and he gives you enabling power to say yes to righteousness and no to anything that comes in the way. I guess I'm passionate about that. So what's the point? What's the point of all this? The only way that we're really gonna gain victory in our life is through the cross. That is where his grace is released. When we give him permission, don't you realize that yieldedness is giving him permission to live his life through yours. He wants to live his life through yours. When we have submitted our lives to the cross by coming to the end of ourselves, the end of our selfish ways and saying, just like I read at the beginning, Lord, help me, save me, I yield to you. Then the supernatural grace for victory comes and empowers us. To walk in the spirit is to walk in the grace of the cross. I gotta also say that you're not gonna be perfect in this journey. You're not, you're just not gonna be perfect in this journey. You're gonna mess up, you're gonna make plenty of messes, but gosh, we have the grace of God. God will not reject you. He is so patient to be with you in the mess. Actually invite him, please invite him into the mess with you. Show, he will show you where you went wrong. He will show you the needs where he can speak affirmation and identity over you and be the shepherd in your life to lead you on the path of life. He wants to help you get up again and try again, but do it with him. Return to the closeness of fellowship with him. Listen to his guiding, gentle voice that is leading you onward. If you're in a season of struggle, I have great news for you. God will be calling you out of that. He will be calling you higher. Even when you choose to reject him, he doesn't give up on you. So many of us have wounds from our life that we are walking through. No matter your past or your present, there is a father here today that is absolutely mad about your life. He is absolutely obsessed with you. He likes you. He loves you. All of his affection and loving kindness is aimed in your direction. And he provided his love for you by paying the absolute most, the absolute most to show his lavish love and grace by giving up his one and only son as a ransom for your life to get you back to unity, to get you back to unbroken love and to get you back to intimacy with the father. The cross, the cross made a way. The cross released us from self, released us from self-effort, and opens the way for supernatural grace through Jesus himself. Can we let the sap of the Holy Spirit flow within? Can we let the life of Jesus produce real, lasting fruit? This is life in Jesus. This is a life message of every saint, Christ and him crucified, the cross at the center. Just look to Jesus today. Look to the cross. Look to his power. Look to his supernatural grace. It is the glory of our life message. It is the glory of our life message.